Hello, and welcome back to the Adam and History Podcast. As always, I'm Chris Grayton. We've been on a short hiatus preparing season four, and I know we promised a lot of new things in this new season. I don't know if the if there's going to be anything that new, but today we are going to do something really different because we're going to try to explore the history of the Ottoman Empire and you know, layers of the Ottoman past through sound. Of course, this historian's sound is not normally something we have access to unless we have descriptions of sound and whatnot. But in sort of a very informal way, we're going to try to uh, draw some links between the Istanbul soundscape of the present and Istanbul's past. When talking about memory and past, one of the issues that always comes up is nostalgia. Uh, That clip you heard at the beginning of the podcast, it was actually a recording of the nostalgic tram on uh, Istiklal Street coming to a stop. Now, the, the very fact that this tram is uh, consciously labeled as nostalgic tells us something about the way people seek to interact with the past. And while we're not going to be nearly as nostalgic on this podcast, this episode certainly will appeal to those of you who are looking for some kind of experience or connection with that long and illustrious Ottoman past. Joining me in this episode is an Ottoman History Podcast regular, also the editor of the blog Stambouline, which explores uh, history through issues of travel and architecture and space, as well as, well as art and objects. A very fascinating blog, uh, Emily Newmeyer. She's a PhD candidate at University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Art History, and we're going to be benefiting from her vast knowledge and interest in uh, the Istanbul historical landscape. Emily, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's it's great to have you back here. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you have to say about some of these spaces, because walking in the urban environment, a lot of us, even if we recognize that the place is historical, it takes a certain eye to appreciate the layers of history contained in a certain space sometimes. Or maybe even a certain ear, too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uncover the the different connections and layers, or in a lot of ways, reconnections uh, to exactly. the past. And that's one of the things a lot of the articles in your blog, whether from you or some of your uh, guest writers, uh, they've, they've have, they have these layers of time on them, that you look at a site in the present and you explore its continued transformation. Right. right? Mm-hmm. These historical sites, whether buildings or other spaces, aren't frozen in the past and coming to us to the present like, fossils but rather they're continually transforming spaces right and exactly in the same way that you know buildings are physical material that's you know in our present time and space i mean it also has these layers of history these accretions of history uh the reason i think sound is such an interesting um way to approach um the history of the city is that in the same way people can use sound and soundscapes uh, to recreate or reconnect to the imagined Ottoman past. And that is indeed why our uh, podcast today is called Echoes of the Ottoman Past, because, of course, there's a lot of different ways to recreate the soundscape. Here in this podcast, we haven't created any artificial environments. In fact, all of our sounds are essentially field recordings Uh, in different locations in Istanbul today. And we're going to connect the sounds that are there today with the sounds that would have been there perhaps in the past. That's right. So for listeners at home, you have a little treat. There's going to be a little challenge aspect of this podcast because most of the clips we're going to present are going to be presented 
without an, any identification of their location or place or what you're hearing, and we'll let you try to figure out what they are, and then we'll be supplying a little more information about those locations. And as these are stereo field recordings, we are going to encourage our listeners to use their, their best set of headphones or speakers to enjoy the uh, audio experience of this podcast. And in fact, we're starting off with a, a pretty easy one. For those who understand Turkish, it's going to be quite clear what kind of space this is in, and even those who don't will probably recognize it. So uh, enjoy this clip, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. So you probably gathered from the sound you just heard, we have some guys advertising their products. In fact, the, the product on display is uh, cheese. You heard the man s- screaming, uh, come and get it, halal olsun, trying to draw in the uh, customers. And we expect this would be uh, very common in places of commerce in the Ottoman Empire, of course, before advertising and before all these things. Yeah, so actually that, that clip that we just listened to uh, was done in Aminanu. Uh, right outside the Misercharsisa. The Misercharsisa is really interesting because I, I think anyone who comes to Istanbul, uh, a lot of people end up there at the, at the Spice Bazaar. And it's really a quintessential experience of, of people visiting the city. Right now it's a big tourist attraction. It, right now it's a big tourist attraction, but it reflects the long-standing history of the area as a port and as a consequently is a commercial center um this was true all the way back in the byzantine period this was the byzantine port and it continued to be a, a port um into the ottoman period of course this is uh, f- for practical reasons it's um or where the waters are calm so you know you don't want to dock in the in the bosphorus um they'll push you right out into the the current will push you out into the marmara so uh it's it's a logical place to to have a port the function of this area as a port was in a way very formally established by the construction of the Spice Bazaar. Um, it's actually a 17th century construction. Um, most people don't know this. It's actually uh, was built at the same time as the Yeni Jami, which is the, the new mosque, which is um, built right next to it. It was part of the vaka for the endowment of the mosque, um, which was commissioned by a woman, uh, the Valide Sultan, uh, Hatije Turhan, or... Uh, like the Queen Mother is how it's kind Mm -hmm. of uh, translated usually, her title. And actually, uh, a lot of people think Misr, of course, in in Turkish means corn, but it can also mean Egypt. Uh, It's it's the Arabic, I mean, word for for Egypt as well. And a lot of people think, think it's the corn it's the corn bazaar because you know that's most bazaars are named after the wares that are sold within them, right? The gold bazaar, the the leather bazaar, you know, and so on. Um, but actually, it's it's called the Misercharsisa because the funds for that building was taken from the, the taxes uh, collected from the province of Egypt. So it actually refers to Egypt, not not corn, as, as a lot of people assume when they visit. Yeah, and of course, somewhere in that area, maybe not corn, but definitely grains that are coming into Istanbul because Istanbul gets a lot of its food supply during the Ottoman yeah. period from the provinces, including from Egypt. These would have been flowing into these places as well. This is this is sort of the central commercial hub of the entire 
empire. Precisely. So what's interesting about this place, the way we can kind of think of this as an as an echo of the Ottoman past, is that through the patronage of this of the spice bazaar, of this really this whole urban development of this economic area, had a direct connection with you know, sort of patronage from the Sultan from and his and the the Vali Day Sultan. And by the way, while we said it's a, a tourist experience, a little bit nostalgic, it's still a great place to find a lot of low priced items if you know how to shop there. That's right. So of course Istanbul, a big area of markets. Now moving into our next next clip is a little spoiler here because we are going to be introducing a commercial space, but I'll leave it to you guys to figure out what it is. So you heard there's some transactions going on, a little shopping, a little advertising. Maybe you heard the sizzling of a grill, some running water, the horn of a boat, and the cry of a seagull there at the end. Of course, we know we're somewhere near the Bosphorus of the Golden Horn. And in fact, the location is the Karaköy uh, Fish Market, just on the other side of the Galata Bridge from Eminönü. Now, for those traveling in Istanbul today, if you think about typical foods of Istanbul, something that's immediately going to come to mind is kebab. But actually, if you look at even the names of the kebabs that are available, whether Adana kebab or Urfa, Urfa kebab, you realize that the, the arrival of kebab to Istanbul and its dissemination is actually fairly late and the result of urban migration during the 20th century. Before that time, Istanbul cuisine was, and to some extent still is, defined by, of course, seafood and particularly fish. Karakoy, uh is supplies basically, you know, the Galata Beolu area with with its fish, um, but it's only just one major fish market throughout the city. Of course, uh, Besiktas has its own fish market. Uh, Kumkapa also has a, a lo- very large fish market, and it's all these places have form little nodes in the city that are um, very important urban spaces even today. Uh, yeah, and if you if you go all around the Bosphorus and bridges, basically everywhere where they can do it, you'll still see fishermen catching fish. Of course, during the Ottoman period, this would have been even more extreme. There would have been lots of small fishing vessels in the Bosphorus and in the Golden Horn, which are no longer there today to the same extent. But. And not just fishing vessels. Uh, whenever you look at the a lot of the old photographs of the Bosphorus shores, you can see these wooden structures that are um, standing just offshores. They look like little platforms on stilts and they're, they're, um, they're dalyan, they're, uh, they're fisheries. Uh, the yeah. idea is, you know, you 
um, suspend nets below them and you you catch fish with them. Unfortunately, there are no more examples of them, but it seems like they were just up and down the Bosphorus. And when you look at a Google map today uh, of the different neighborhoods up and down the Bosphorus, you can see that predominantly several of them end in Kyiv. So it's clear that all these neighborhoods that are now sort of one large um that are now kind of part of the city used to be these small yeah. little fishing villages. Yeah, um, the urban sprawl has incorporated all these north Bosphorus uh, fishing villages with time. And actually, if you really go all the way up the Bosphorus, you still have some of these, like Garipche, for example. And these have come into yeah, the news exactly. because they're going to be eliminated, essentially, by the building of that third bridge. They will create a new space called North Istanbul, I guess <laughs> is what they're calling it right now. Okay. And so that little clip we just played for you was the Antikaja Pazara or the, you know, antique market uh, in Ferikei. You won't find too much stuff from the deep Ottoman past, but of course from the late 19th century and early 20th century, there, there's quite a bit of stuff there and it's definitely worth checking out. And here I want to remind our listeners again that you can find our field recordings, including ones not included in this podcast, on our SoundCloud page for those who want to have some relaxing ambient noises of Istanbul in the background while they work as a change of pace from music and whatnot. The Antikaja Pazara, which has material artifacts from the, p- the past, kind of reminds us of just how quickly life in Istanbul changes and how hard it is to access uh, the material and, of course, auditory aspects of the Ottoman city of Istanbul or Constantinople. And I guess this is especially hard when we try to access the things most typically Ottoman, the things associated with the Ottoman dynasty, the Ottoman government, the palaces and and whatnot, the buildings survive, but the feeling has kind of changed. So with that in mind, I wanted to visit some of the most frequently visited sites or museums that are connected directly with the Ottoman past that people just come come to people's minds immediately when they think about the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman the Ottoman dynasty. But I found when I when I went there that it was almost impossible. In fact it was impossible to recreate the sounds of these spaces um, as far as we understand them in, in the Ottoman period. So you guys just heard that clip. You heard the, the sounds of tourists. Uh, it's in fact the, the Topkapı Palace Museum. And of course, the very fact that it's a museum tells us that it's not being used the same way that it was today. But Emily, beyond beyond the obvious, what is so radically different about the soundscape of the Topkapı Palace Museum when compared with the palace of the past? What's specifically interesting about going to the Topkapa and thinking about the Topkapa Palace's soundscape is that we have surviving to this day a, 
the Kanuname. There was, starting with Mehmet II, when, with the construction of the Topkapi Palace, it started around the 1470s. They created a, a legal code that dictated court culture and life, court life in the Topkapi Palace and how life should be conducted. And part of these, uh, part of this code did include um, regulations surrounding sound and the soundscape of the palace. And um, Nina Ergin has done a lot of great work on this topic. And she points out that, you know, beginning with Mehmed II, and then it really kind of reaches its peak uh, under um, Suleiman II and into the 16th century. It's dictated that at least in the third court, i.e. where the sultan himself, where his sleeping chambers were and where his pages were. So, I mean, the the inner inner sanctum of of the top cup of palace was supposed to be silent. And I mean, you know, no one was supposed to speak above a whisper. And then finally, in, in under Suleiman's period, uh, it went to such an extent that people could not speak at all. And pages actually developed a sign language uh, to communicate with each other, um, to maintain this silence. And during the 16th century, we have um, during court ceremonies, when diplomats would visit, when they were given an audience with the sultan, they were really struck by this spectacle of, you know, literally hundreds of people standing in the second courtyard and standing in, in all the regalia, and every, it was perfectly silent. And this really impacted them. Can you imagine, you know, walking into a place? And, I mean, um, one diplomat uh, said, you know, people were, all these Janissaries were standing as if they were statues, you know, they were not moving. And this, this was very striking for them. So, you know, it's also part of this idea that this, that's not unique to the Ottomans. I mean, you know, it's in a lot of different empires that the Sultan and his family were sacred and they need to be contained in, they need to be veiled or protected in a place right right you know so maintaining a that sanctity a certain solemnity right, exactly so there's like a sanctity that's associated with the sultan and his family and one of the aspects of sanctifying this place is to maintain silence right. and and when you bring that detail it's really striking just how visual our conventional understanding of the past really is you know people go to these beautifully preserved or indeed restored palaces we see the objects but there's all this noise. And so the spaces, you know, on other levels of the sensory exper- experience, whether auditory or indeed we can get into scent as well, the space is radically different than what it was in the past. So it would be interesting to think about what it would mean to try to reconstruct these spaces completely, not just, you know, physically reconstruct them, but indeed make that experience. Yeah. So I actually thought. I, I challenged myself and thought, is there any place in the top Kappa still that is silent? Could I go anywhere that's silent in there? And actually, I went all the way to the um, to the gardens where the kiosks are, and I had to literally go really press my back up against uh, one of the outer walls of the gardens, literally get as far away from all the tourists as I could to try to record silence to record silence or or at least the sounds of nature you know the birds Mm -hmm. chirping and trees swaying you can't escape those noises um and after sitting there for about 30 minutes uh and you know people would keep walking up and and you know either jumping in the fountain or you know talking loudly about you know the kiosk that they're looking at in front of them 
um, I realized that it was it was completely impossible to actually capture silence in the top cuppa. So at some point, I just let it run, and this is what we got. This is what we got. So it is indeed quite difficult to find silence in Istanbul. We have the sounds of, of, of machines everywhere in the city. We have the sounds of cars. But one place where we did get a little bit more of a silent quality, we're not going to give a tease or anything, but this is the Church of St. Anthony, which of course you can visit right off Istiklal and receives a lot of uh, tourists and visitors. But here's the sound we recorded there, and you'll see the greater degree of solemnity when we compare it with the uh, Topkapi Palace you heard just before. So for whatever reason, it does seem that, I mean, religion in part, in part because, you know, the Ottoman dynasty hasn't survived, but the religions associated with churches and mosques, religion does command a little bit more uh, of the uh, quiet and solemnity we associate with that reverence for a, a, a sacred or special place. But that being said, the role of religious institutions in the soundscape of Ottoman Istanbul was actually quite distinct. You know, you would have had a lot of church bells and also, of course, uh, the call to prayer. In a in a f- upcoming podcast with Avner Vishnitzer, we're actually going to talk about how the call to prayer was used within like a, a early modern conception of time. People's daily activities were uh, structured around uh, parts of the day that were marked by the call to prayer. Of course, today the call to prayer doesn't have that function really. But Emily has gone out and recorded. One particular call to prayer that the she thinks has a, a special historical significance. So you guys can listen to it and then uh, we'll talk about it. So actually what you just heard is two calls to prayers from two different minarets. Uh, one is from Sultan Ahmed, and the other one is from Hagia Sophia, from Hagia Sophia. And of course, an azan, uh, the call to prayer in Istanbul, is nothing out of the ordinary. But the call to prayer coming from Hagia Sophia, from Hagia Sophia, is, is very significant. And it's very politically charged uh, in this, in Turkey today. And specifically, Hagia Sophia's, um, which is currently a museum. It's right. been a museum since the formation of the Republic. And of course, as probably most of your most of our listeners know, it it was uh, the 
main cathedral during the Byzantine period, and then it was converted into a mosque by Mehmed II, and then at the in in the 15th century, and then in the 1930s, it was converted into a museum. In the past few years, there's been a question of whether or not the the museum should be converted back into a church. And obviously this is very high stakes. There are a lot of people who have, you know, who think it should be a church, it should be a museum, it should be a mosque. So just a year or two ago, they installed megaphones on um, two of the two of the minarets of Hagia Sophia. It has four. And since that time, they've brought in the, the Muftuluk, the religious directorate of uh, Istanbul, um, has made arrangements for the three um, three really considered the top uh, muezzin, the, the, the people who give the call to prayers, who are considered the most uh, uh, expert uh, muezzin to, uh, to give the call to prayer at Hagia Sophia. So anyway, the arrangement now is that they have um, the different muezzin from Bayezid, the new, the new mosque, and uh, the Lalili Mosque to uh, give the call to prayers only during the... the to afternoon prayers. So this has been going on for about two years now. So now even as it's still a museum, um, that you can hear the call to prayer given uh, from from the loudspeakers at Hagia Sophia. And obviously this has ignited a lot of controversy, of course, because for the people who want to, to be a museum still, um, or at the very least not to be a mosque, uh, they think it's important to maintain this as a secular space because it has a shared history. Others, um, you know, who are in support of this, uh, of this move, um, you know, are saying that, you know, it, it introduces tourists um, to Islam. It, you know, gives it, it, it recreates um, or it, it reestablishes the one of the realities, the historical realities of Hagia Sophia. I mean, this, the, the politics of sound here are very interesting. In fact, the call to prayer was, even during the, the early Republican period, was subject to such uh, politically-minded changes, right? They had, uh, they had for a, a brief period, changed the azan into being in a, a Turkish translation rather than the one that currently stands, which is in Arabic. So as you can see, um, because uh, the present is the present, it's very hard to reconstruct the soundscape of Istanbul, the past sounds, even... If we have the same sound, it doesn't necessarily carry the same meaning as it would have carried in that time. But if you if you look closely, and as I said at the beginning of the podcast, Emily's good at looking closely at these spaces and finding these hidden layers, you can find some sounds that do tell us a little bit more about the Ottoman past. So we're going to play you a clip of one such sound, and then Emily's going to talk about it. So what you just heard was uh, actually, of course, water flowing uh, at uh, a cheshme or a fountain uh, in the square of Uskadar on the Asian side of Istanbul. And this fountain really stands in the center of the square, and it's almost like a its own standalone little structure. It's it's a and it has uh, fountains on all four sides. And, and and when we say fountain here, it's important for our listeners, maybe who haven't been to Istanbul, this is not like a 
gushing fountain, but rather these are faucets, essentially. Yeah, exactly. It's a faucet that you turn on and off, and it has it pours into a basin. So it's a functional fountain that people use for, as a water source. It, it is a functional fountain. Istanbul has hundreds of Ottoman fountains. Uh, of course, you know there wasn't running water um, in people's homes until right up until the 20th century. So the main way people had access to water were these fountains. Um, and in most cases, they're not functioning anymore. But uh, I was actually really interested when I was in Uskadar um, to see an, you know, an old man walk up to the fountain, turn the faucet on, you know, get the cup, take a drink of water and, you know, walk off, you know, wherever he wherever he's going. So it was interesting to see that, you know, even today in Uskadar, it's in the sort of center of this uh it's sort of in the middle of this traffic circle, but to see people still using it um, in the sort of for the in the original function that that it was intended, and these fountains specifically, these um, these sort of standalone kind of look like little pavilions almost. They have lovely uh, marble um, decorations. Um, they're very intricate, um, very beautiful buildings. Um, they really they they become. Um, the really significant uh, 18th century intervention into the city, and Shireen Hamade, of course, uh, documents this um, in her work, that there's really kind of, an, in the 18th century, there's sort of an opening up um, from the old city um, into the Bosphorus, and these fountains are really key for creating new public spaces, really, uh, where people can drink coffee and, you know, talk and meet each other um, on the street, creating sort of new um, new neighborhood squares um, up and down the Bosphorus. And, and the, the construction of these fountains was, uh, I guess, funded by prominent people. This is a common act of charity, right, to fund the construction of a fountain. In the case of the Uskadar fountain, that was actually commissioned by the Sultan, by Ahmed III. But as Shireen Hamaday points out, um, fountains are really interesting, at least in the 18th century, because um, they were considered, they weren't considered so high status as, say, a mosque, you know, which was... Yeah. But um, so there really it was really was kind of a patronage choice that was available to people who weren't necessarily who were wealthy or, or had significance, but they weren't necessarily in, you know, in the upper, upper echelons of the Ottoman Empire. So you get a lot of people who are in the um, upper ranks of government, but they're not necessarily a grand vizier or a or a sultan. Right. Who, um, who were commissioning these fountains. Um, I think I think Shireen Hamaday says that something like half of these fountains were commissioned by um I guess you could describe them like sort of non-royal mm-hmm. patrons. So it becomes a sort of way for the upper middle class to assert themselves in the urban space. And if you look around in Istanbul, you realize these things are everywhere surviving. Like more modest, smaller fountains are everywhere surviving in various forms. A lot of times even the kitabe, the little writing at the top that tells a little bit about who built it and why, is there. And so these are actually a, 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 a interesting uh, source for historians of Istanbul. When understand the political and socioeconomic life sort of not maybe on a popular mass level, but sort of that, as you said, smaller aristocrats and, and business people of the city. So most of the sounds we've been playing for you guys are like field recording, sort of public open spaces, but of course... Uh, the auditory experience of Ottoman life must have been a bit more than that. This next clip we're going to play for you is a really interesting sound that Emily captured, and we'll see if you can guess what it is. 
So Emily, there's all these uh, squeaking noises, scratching. What is that? So the sound you just heard is uh, a calligrapher, a practicing calligrapher here in Istanbul. His name is Savash Chevik, and it's the sound of the reed pen that he uses touching the paper. It's the sound of him writing. Calligraphy, uh, if you want to call it Islamic calligraphy, Ottoman calligraphy, Turkish calligraphy, um, but you know, in the Arabic script. In Istanbul, there's a, a very long tradition of, there's actually different schools of, of um, let's call it Islamic calligraphy. Um, there was a prominent school in Istanbul, a whole, you know, sort of Ottoman style, if you will. And there's sort of this very long and illustrious tradition of different, um, of different calligraphers uh, in the Ottoman, who are in many cases patronized by the Ottoman court. So, of course, in the 20th century, um, with the fall of the Ottoman Empire into the Turkish Republic um, and with the language reforms where they, uh, by which you changed uh, Turkish from an Arabic alphabet uh, into Latin or uh, Roman letters. Um, this as an art form uh, grew less popular um, in the in the early Republican period. But of course, calligraphers it never died out completely, and it survived through this through this period. And uh, you have people like like Savashchevik who can really trace his so-called lineage in terms of his his teacher and his teacher's teacher um, back into the Ottoman period. And we had an episode um, a few years back now with Irvin Jemiyashik talking about this uh, calligraphic art in the Muslim world, and uh, calligraphy, as you as you kind of alluded to, there is a is a an art form that's dying multiple deaths because you know on one hand people are just writing less of course there was a time period where everyone had to learn good handwriting of course that's no longer the case calligraphic art is of course even another level of that but of you know in turkey for a long time because of that change in the script this art form is kind of marginalized and it's it's interesting to see it having this a, a modest revival, I guess, uh, in the present. I wouldn't even call it a modest revival. It's really seeing um, a uh, seeing a real comeback in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Has been a with I guess what you want to call Ottomania, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and also in terms of a growing a, a growing uh, religious uh, middle class here in Istanbul. You see a surge of interest in calligraphy courses and not just calligraphy but anything that's um anything that's interpreted as you know a traditional or turkish ottoman arts um are really exploding in terms of uh courses when you look at a, the the art of calligraphy uh, as as savash has told me several times is that the point is to erase the gestures it, the idea is you want it to be sort of a total work of art mm. right and in a way um and a lot there there's certain methods you can have to sort of make corrections if you make a mistake or to kind of cover up the different um that sort of hides the hand and what's so wonderful about uh, recording the sound is that it does make such an unusual sound and when you listen to it i mean um each sound each letter has its own sound of course i mean you can really hear the gestures of his hand so in a way i you know, if I listen to this closely enough, I could say, well, he's actually writing this letter now and he's writing this letter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's you can really, hear the curves and the straight lines. You can hear 
the curves and the straight lines have their own unique sounds. It's so interesting that I, if, you know, if you just paid attention um, closely enough, you could actually reconstruct what he's actually writing. You know, in doing this project, Emily, that's one of the really interesting things I took away going out recording things in Istanbul. If you listen closely, like normally our auditory field is so focused, we listen in on things of relevance. We don't always take in that complete uh, sound experience that's going on in any particular place. And, uh, you know, through these recordings, I hope we're, we're highlighting some of the sounds that maybe would get ignored. And of course, the sounds of art taking place. We knew Emily, as the editor of Stambouline, was going to somehow bring us back to the visual arts. But uh, these sounds really offer a, a really new perspective in, in looking at the past. And so continuing on that theme, but moving more back into the realm of, of the public sphere of, of people and the way they use the city, I want to play uh, a little clip for you that has a lot of different sounds going on, and we'll talk about what they mean. Let me tell you guys what I heard in this clip. So it's a crisp March evening near the docks of uh, Karakoy. A German tourist is pulling up on his bike and making his way past this crowd of Samit sellers to take in the view on the water. There's a sort of calm darkness out of, all over the Golden Horn. And as the vapor, the boat, begins to pull away from a dock, a woman in high heels is running by us you know, in a feeble attempt to catch the ship which has already been untied from the docks and is on its way to Kadakoy. This is the experience, you know, we have it every day in Istanbul, trying to get around in the city, the sounds of transport. And while transport is changing continually, you know, every day now there's a new metro station. So the way we get around the city is constantly in a, in a fluid state. The, the use of boats, which dates well back to the Ottoman period, is an example of continuities in the way people uh, navigate the geography of Istanbul. I mean, boats even go back now that we've have the results of the excavations at Yeni Kappa. We know that, of course, boats are in Istanbul. Uh, we have boats that, you know, are 2000 years old uh, that are resulting from these excavations. But in terms of the, the Ottoman, in terms of the Ottoman past, uh, you know, if if you go to the the wonderfully uh, newly restored uh, Denise Museum, see the Naval Museum, you can see all these really lovely um uh, kaike or um, these kind of really long rowboats um, that were really for uh, they were kind of like sort of almost like a designer Porsche uh, rowboat uh, you know we usually require um, you know upwards of you know 40 or 60 uh, Roman um, at any given time and they were usually reserved for the Sultan right he mm-hmm. would have his private boat to go up and down the Bosphorus and of course there were four sort of, you know, hoi polloi, you know, you could hire a rowboat to take you yeah. back and forth across the side. There was really no other 
of course, no other option um, before the the Bosphorus Bridge was constructed in the 20th century. So, um, but in terms of public transport, um, the introduction of the of the steamboat of, right. was a huge deal in Istanbul um, in the and basically in the middle of the 19th century. And that was really the beginning of these connections we see between Kadıköy, Üsküdar, and the historical peninsula. The, the fact that people could go back in large volume between the two continents. Exactly. I mean, before people, either if you were extraordinarily wealthy and you had your own boat, or um, you could, um, you could of course, hire passage in a smaller rowboat, but, I mean, they weren't terribly big. So, you know, generally for most people, you know, a daily commute across the Bosphorus was completely out of the question uh, before the 19th century. So the introduction of the steamboat connecting the Anatolian side to the European side was a huge step in opening the city up in terms of making daily commuting even possible. Um, This is also, um, you know, hand in hand with the tramway. So the sort of modernization of the city was, and of course, Zeynep Çelik talks about this in her book, uh, Remaking Istanbul. Um, in terms of the 19th century modernization process. But it really um, made a huge impact on how people um, viewed the city, also in terms of viewing the city from the water, that sort of quintessential Istanbul experience, to have that panoramic view on the boat, was a very historically specific one when it was introduced in the the 19th century. Well, that famous song, Üsküdar'a Giderken, it's taking place on a boat. They're not on the Bosphorus Bridge. They're not on the Marmaray. This is like... Exactly. You know, this is this is the quintessential uh, popular conception of Istanbul. And, uh, you know, now there's a lot of ways to get back and forth between Asia. But uh, in our next clip, we're going to take a little journey to some place that is still to this day only reachable by boat. So listen and enjoy. Emily, that sound is really unmistakable. We took that uh, during a lovely picnic on the island of Bukada that we did a, a couple weeks ago. You heard a horse and carriage. You heard the sound of the horse. You heard the sound of the driver uh, soliciting passengers. Uh, Bukada is one of the few places where you'll still find a horse and carriage in Istanbul really being used for transportation. Of course, not just for tourism, but in fact, because there are no private vehicles on the island, really, uh, people even use these to get around. One of the one of the charms of living on a on a small island, or maybe one of the the problems living on a small island, of course, is that uh, you there are no there are no motor vehicles allowed. So basically, your only options to get around and Bukada is not um, it's not so small. I mean, you know, um, it's still a it's still a bit of a hike. It's still a bit of a trek uh, to get around um, to all the different um, parts of the island. Uh, so your options are really a bike or or the horse-drawn carriage. Uh, and in the Ottoman period, of course, horses are aren't unique to right. Bukada of all. I mean, Bukada is sort of a the one of the last places where you could hear a sound that you could hear anywhere in the city during exactly. the Ottoman period before electricity. Um, horse-drawn vehicles was the way to get around. In fact, the first tram the first was drawn by horses. Exactly was drawn by horses. Very, very interesting. Uh, which reminds us just how much animals have sort of been removed or like cordoned off in, in like the urban landscape. We don't have like work animals uh, around anymore in Istanbul. You know, urbanization has radically changed the city. 
in terms of how people use the city, you're not going to hear what it sounds like in the Ottoman Empire. But that doesn't mean that we can't draw parallels between the sounds that exist in those spaces today and the sounds that existed in the past. So now for our last few sounds on this podcast, we're going to uh, show very uh, a few very modern uh, human sounds and maybe connect them to the Ottoman past. <laughs> So you just heard some halai going on on Istiklal Street. This was during the elections, the HDP, which is uh, associated with BDP, was uh, promoting, you know, this is the party associated with sort of leftist multiculturalism, and they were doing a little bit of uh, dancing to promote their cause. Uh, the public space is a political space. It's a, it's a place where identity is expressed and was expressed in the Ottoman period as well. And so while the people who live in the city have, have always changed, the sort of multilingual, cosmopolitan flavor of the uh, Istanbul soundscape remains in, until today. Here's a clip that offers a great example of that. So you just heard the, some sounds of people having conversations in the street. Languages that you might not have heard in the Ottoman period, you might have heard in the Ottoman period. Uh, that was re- actually recorded on the streets in the Kurtulush neighborhood, which uh, uh, during the Ottoman period is called Tatavla. Tatavla in the Ottoman period, which is of course its Greek name, um, was known as a, a Greek neighborhood in the in the 19th and 20, early 20th century, um, actually even up until the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Um and of course, even within what we could think of the minority um, communities in Istanbul, of course, though, you know, in terms of the Greeks, the Armenians, Jews, um, Kurds, uh, they were, you know, living in great numbers here in Istanbul, of course. And within these communities, there were class hierarchies as well. So I wouldn't call uh, Tatavla, uh, from my understanding, uh, a really rich neighborhood like, say, Tarabia. No, in fact, it grew a little bit later, right? This is like, as more migrants start to come to Istanbul during the 19th century, the Tatavla, Ferikoy area really starts to explode. And when you visit the churches here, you know, um, they're they're quite beautiful, but they're, you know, they're not, they're not so, um, they're not, say, so big as some of the churches you'll see, um, or as richly furnished as some of the churches that you'll see in the old city near the Patriarchate, or say, in probably wealthier neighborhoods, such as Kuzgunjuk, um, or this beautiful church out in Yenikwe. Uh, Tatavla was really more of a working class Greek neighborhood. Yeah. And uh, one of the things, I mean, of course, it's not just Greeks, uh, but there were also Armenians and, and Jews living and Kurds living here as well. And a lot of them still do. And so while Greek is not as commonly heard uh, in Kortelush uh, as it was in the past, all this is maybe the one, one of the places that you will hear Greek on the street sometimes, and certainly Armenian. A lot of the, what you hear people speaking in Kortelush neighborhood, especially 
as you move closer to Sondarak, where, where me and Emily have both spent some time, you hear Kurdish, Arabic, of course, with Iraqis and Syrians coming to Istanbul. And you hear, you hear French and English spoken by African immigrants uh, and, of course, even African languages. So it still has that. So while the, while the, the languages have changed, uh, this, this working class migrant uh, cosmopolitanism remains a character of Kurdish to this day. So you just heard the, the, the pleasant sound of some the wings of pigeon fluttering all around you. That, of course, occurred in Taksim Square, one of the centers of life in Istanbul today, and, and one that was developed during the, the late Ottoman period. In the late Ottoman period, Taksim Square was the site of the Kushla, of the winter barracks for the, for the Ottoman army. In to the Republican period, it was converted actually into a soccer pitch, a football pitch. Mm-hmm. And then in the 40s, uh, because, you know, in the early Republican period, Istanbul sort of fell off the map in terms of urban development. There was more attention on Ankara. But in the in the late 30s and 40s, um, there was a look to there was a view to rejuvenate, redevelop Istanbul and uh, Taksim Square and the demolition of the barracks and the creation of Gezi Park was sort of the brainchild of Henri Prost, um, who envisioned this as a modern urban space, uh, a public space um, that, as you know, we've seen in last summer's, you know, Gezi demonstrations is a place for, it's a place for tourists, it's a place for people uh, experiencing Istanbul's nightlife, commuters, mm-hmm. uh, protesters, um, people from literally every walk of life uh, meet in Taksim. And, and for those who are wondering more about that, you know, we covered that history at some length in our in our podcast. We did last summer about the Gezi protests as they were unfolding, and also Emily's published on the history of Taksim Square in her blog, Stambulin. We've got the links on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, so you can get to Emily's articles as well as other material related to Taksim Square. We've recorded a lot of sounds. We're not going to have the time to present all of them here today. We've got uh, our full uh, field recordings up on our SoundCloud page. Of course, if you want to listen to more of what Istanbul sounds like today, even for those who are living in Istanbul, there's a certain special quality of sitting and concentrating just on the sounds, listening with headphones and you know, kind of meditating upon everything you're hearing. And thus far, uh, one of the things we haven't heard a lot of is music. I know a lot of people maybe were expecting music, whether to hear some rebetico, some, you know, like cabaret-style music, or to hear some more traditionally, like, Ottoman, Anatolian music, whatever. We didn't have any of that in this podcast, and, and, and we won't be, although music is certainly always a big topic on Ottoman History Podcast. But here we will finish off with one last clip that is a musical performance that just carries so many layers of history that we had to include it. So listen, see you if you can identify it and, and where it is.
just heard is the Meter band at the at the uh, Oscari uh, Museum in Istanbul, the military museum. So the Meter band is kind of envisioned as a band of Janissaries, and of course the Janissaries are the professional military force uh, of the Ottoman of the pre nineteenth century Ottoman Empire, and with the with the abolition of the Janissaries in the early 19th century, this uh, concept of the military band kind of fell out of favor. But really interestingly, uh, it actually as late as the 1950s, um, we see a revival of the Mehter band in the in the Republican period. Of course, it's sort of after the sort of very anti-Ottoman sentiments of yeah. the early Republican period. But by the 50s, um, this kind of need to reconnect to an Ottoman past or kind of create, um, connect Turkish nationalism right. uh, to a kind of supranational imperial past. And a martial past. Too. A martial past. Of course, um, several aspects of Turkish nationalism are um, sort of founded on different points of military history. Um, in the 50s, of course, there was a need for this. You know, the, the Turks were engaged in the Korean War. There was this vehicle in in the Mehter band to sort of find reestablish Turkey's uh, connection to a military past through this you know neo uh, Janissary band that you can hear live twice <laughs> twice a day every day at the uh, at the military museum. So that is going to be our last uh, recording for the podcast. This is the conclusion of uh, our first episode of season four. We've offered. Uh, sounds of Istanbul's present uh, and try to connect them to uh, parallels in the Ottoman past. Emily, for me, this has been a very interesting experiment, you know, listening to Istanbul in a different way and thinking about how sound is related to history. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, and, I, and I hope maybe we'll see some of this from you or from someone else to see even a, a sound used as a historical source in a more systematic way in the future. Yeah, Chris, thanks a lot. This has been really fun. As an art historian, I spend most of my time thinking about the visual. Uh, it's definitely uh, been a lot of fun listening uh, instead of looking at the city. As an archival historian, for me, the sensory deprivation of the history writing experience always stands in stark contrast to the, the vividness of the uh, you know things we're trying to reconstruct and portray. And I hope uh, uh, this podcast has served that purpose for our listeners who are more accustomed to these dense uh, lectures and interviews that, you know, will be continuing on the Autumn History Podcast. Don't worry, we still have lots of that coming up in the future, including uh, one with Emily. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to our listeners for staying tuned. Remember, we have uh, lots of sounds up on our SoundCloud page, as well as uh, other links in the blog, autumnhistorypodcast.com. And uh, we will, we will one last time mention Emily's own blog, stambuline.com, where you can find more about uh, places and, and sights and sounds. You can also use the blog as a space to leave your comments and questions for the podcast. Uh, we also want to invite you to join us on Facebook. Uh, our Facebook group is now almost 15,000 strong, and uh, that's a place where you can get in touch with other Ottoman history enthusiasts and keep track of all of our latest content. Maybe even suggest your own sounds for, a, uh, who knows, part two to this uh, audio podcast. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time. Until then, take care.